Welcome to the Root of the Cause radio show. I'm your host, Dove, and today I'm going to be doing a solo episode on estrogen. And so the reason I chose estrogen is because I think it's one of the more misunderstood hormones in the body, right? So not just specifically in the context of women's health, but for men as well. I just think most people don't know really where to even begin regarding their estrogen status, and rarely do their doctors provide really much help and guidance outside of some you know, potentially pathological concerns and or if there's perhaps a fertility pursuit at play. Now, with that said, in this episode, I wanted to, for starters, get into some of the various testing methods and some of the pros and cons of those methods. I also wanted to dig into what estrogen metabolites are, as well as the timing of the testing that would render the most consistent and accurate results, right? Something that's not often really looked at or talked about or something that people know anything about. And I also want to get into why someone might have levels that are too high, too low. Now, I think most people in this space that talk about estrogen will specifically talk about one gender or another, right? They sort of divide it up. And I decided I'm gonna discuss both genders in this episode. For one, because there is a lot of overlap. And secondly, I think most people have someone close to them of the opposite sex that can benefit from this content. So it just seemed more sensible to provide a broader sort of gender-inclusive overview of estrogen, perhaps at a later date. I'll do a deeper dive, sort of homing in on just women and then just men. Okay, so without further delay, I want to jump right into the episode on all things estrogen. Now, most people, I think, think of estrogen as strictly a female sex hormone that's responsible for the development uh, as well as the regulation of the female reproductive system as well as secondary sex characteristics that develop during puberty. And while that is true, estrogen is clearly way more than that, right? For one, it exists and is involved in both men and women. And obviously it's quite different in men, but ultimately it does exist and is needed in both genders. Now, in a menstruating female, the majority of estrogen comes from the ovaries. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into the physiology in this particular episode, but just know the ovaries are the main player. And also, incidentally... You know, I'm going to first in this episode do more of a cursory overview on estrogen, and then as the episode progresses, I'm going to dig deeper and deeper. Now, the adrenal glands also make a little, as do the breast tissue and fat cells in general. So with that said, that would then mean a postmenopausal female would be heavily relying on the adrenal glands as well as the fat cells to make estrogen. And... As a result, you'll tend to see those levels sort of drop dramatically in a postmenopausal female relative to what their levels were during their premenopausal years, right? It's just logical. Now, estrogen is also responsible for fat distribution in women, right? This is why you'll see a disproportionate fat distribution by the hips and breasts relative to men who tend to gain fat more in their belly. So... Okay, what else? Now, estrogen also has an impact on cholesterol levels, which a lot of people don't know. And it has been known to impact the reduction of LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, and increase the so-called 
good cholesterol, which is the HDL cholesterol. Now, the impact that LDL cholesterol may or may not have on heart health is not something I'm going to get into right now in this particular episode, but just know it has been known to impact those levels. So estrogen also impacts bone density by aiding in the suppression of what's called osteoclastic or more simply put, think osteoclastic bone breaking down activity via the interaction with what's known as the parathyroid hormone, right? To put it simply, parathyroid hormone signals for bone breakdown to occur in order to ideally be built back up via what's called osteoblastic activity. So just know, I mean, it's, it sounds complicated, but just know the interplay estrogen has on parathyroid hormone then renders a positive effect on bone density. And this is thought to perhaps be one of the various reasons why a postmenopausal female will find herself with bone density that is suboptimal, to say the least, right? It's a big problem. Now, in men, estrogen will also come from the adrenal glands as well as fat cells, but most notably, in men is derived from testosterone. So testosterone actually gets turned into estrogen by an enzyme called aromatase. And that enzyme gets upregulated by adipose tissue or excess adipose tissue in particular. And adipose tissue is just a fancy way of saying body fat, right? So insulin is also a huge upregulator of aromatase as well as is alcohol consumption. Now, just keep in mind, there are some men who are super lean but still struggle with their estrogen levels, which just sounds kind of backwards. And that definitely is not typical. But for those people, for those people who struggle that are lean, it would be smart to check their fasting insulin and or uh, their C-peptide, C-peptide being kind of a more stable sort of indirect way of looking into insulin levels, right? And if those levels are high, you could assume there might be an issue there despite their lean status. Now, the fact is some people have a genetic polymorphism within that gene that's encoded for aromatase, which is called the CYP19. So, you know, these people, they really, they have to do everything they can to make sure that that gene doesn't express itself. And really, that's where lifestyle interventions, you know, proper supplementation support, as well as doing routine testing will help to better regulate that enzyme and ultimately help to avoid potential issues, right? If we could prevent it from expressing itself epigenetically, right, which is sort of like above the gene, what sort of influences our genes, we can get a handle on it, be proactive and help to mitigate uh, potential issues with estrogen. So excess estrogen in men has been implicated, believe it or not, an enlargement of breast tissue. And it's also, which is a big problem in men, prostate health, right? A lot of people assume that prostate health or the lack thereof, lack thereof is an issue of the metabolite of testosterone, which is dihydrotestosterone. And while that is true, estrogen plays a big role with prostate health as well. You know, it also has implications of mood, right? Depression, sexual dysfunction, you know, just to name a few and the list goes on. So just keep in mind that high estrogen, while problematic for men, low levels can also be an issue as well. For one, 
estrogen levels in men sort of aids in the maturation of sperm. And it also becomes stored and sort of pairs with testosterone in a way to increase libido, which in my opinion is kind of important. So you don't want estrogen in the tank. You don't want to suppress it too much. Now, if estrogen is too low in men, the question is why? And really, one of the lowest or really the lowest hanging fruit to me would be low testosterone. So if the bulk of estrogen is derived from testosterone, there's just think about it logically, there'd be a fair chance that testosterone or low testosterone may be ultimately the cause. Now, often you're, you'll hear people blaming high estrogen for low testosterone, and that certainly can happen, especially if someone is hyper-aromatizing on top of their levels of, t- of testosterone being, you know, even slightly suboptimal to start. But just as often, it's the mere fact that the raw materials that make estrogen for a man are low, and thus estrogen is low and or becomes low. Now, if estrogen is high, you want to first determine why the levels are high, right? You'll notice in females in particular, you'll oftentimes hear about practitioners administering progesterone as their sort of go-to magic bullet to, you know, in air quotes, fix supposedly high estrogen levels. And the problem is without knowing whether this so-called high estrogen, you know, be it in a woman or a man, is an issue of production of estrogen, of the clearance of estrogen, and or you know, even exogenous sources driving up the estrogen, you're really kind of just guessing and hoping some arbitrary protocol that the you know so-called hormone expert gives you will work. Now, keep in mind, there are three estrogens, right? It's not just one estrogen. There's three. There's, I mean, there's technically four, but the fourth one, which is called estrol, actually only exists among pregnant women, you know, as it's produced by the fetal liver. So we're not going to really be talking about that too much. It's not that relevant for our discussion um, on this episode. So we have estrone, which tends not to reflect well in blood. There's estriol, which apart from that of a pregnant woman, the levels are not going to be high enough to be measured accurately in blood. And then there's estradiol, which is the strongest of the three and is what's most often and ideally the one that's measured to provide a window into overall estrogen status. So the question is, which of the many estradiol tests is most accurate? Aha. So, okay, the gold standard is the FDA-approved serum estradiol blood test. And that seems to be pretty reliable for a premenopausal cycling female. However, there is a more sensitive assay that LabCorp developed for men as well as for children and postmenopausal women, basically for people who have lower levels of estrogen. And that test is called the sensitive estradiol test. You know, they obviously weren't too creative with the name, but I guess they wanted to get right to the point with that one. But, you know, keep in mind That test, that sensitive estradiol test, incidentally is not an FDA-approved test. And while it's widely considered to be more sensitive, hence the name, it's also considerably more expensive, but it may be worth the extra money to ensure what many consider to be a more accurate reading, especially for those in the particular demographic the test was designed for. 
Now, what's interesting is that the serum estradiol test tends to render higher results than that of the sensitive test, which is really counterintuitive, right? Usually, by definition, if a test is more sensitive, it'll pick up on things that the otherwise less sensitive test would not and thus give you a higher readout. It's just logical, but that tends not to be the case with the sensitive estradiol test. And I'll admit that is a bit confusing and contradictory. And to be honest, I would love to chat with someone from the group who developed that particular assay and kind of get to the bottom of that. It would, you know, it'd be super cool to pick their brain a bit. And, you know, I'll just say here, if and when that does happen, I'll be sure to share my findings with you guys and divulge all that via the podcast. Okay, so what else? We covered the standard FDA-approved tests, the less known but considered to be more accurate tests. So what else What else is there, right? There's also free estradiol as well. Now, most people assume that free hormones outside of testosterone are not available via blood, but that's actually not accurate. So for starters, free estradiol as well as pretty much any steroid hormone is unbound, meaning available to be uptaken by the receptor in order to an illicit effect on the body. So free sex hormones are bound by proteins such as sex hormone binding globulin, that's that's one main one, as well as albumin. So why would someone want to know free estradiol over bound estradiol, also known as serum estradiol? Now, I would argue they wouldn't, right? Ideally, you'd want to know both, but only knowing free hormones while extremely valuable and really depending on what the need for that data is could even at times uh, be even more valuable. I still would submit that by and large free estradiol in isolation doesn't really provide enough actionable data as well as really free any hormone, even testosterone and so on. The problem is that Free estradiol doesn't tell you what your actual hormone output is, which means if you have a primary hormonal issue, only knowing the free hormone status could leave you missing a critical piece. And conversely, knowing only unbound levels could cause you to miss a potential secondary hormone issue. This is why once hormone levels could look, for example, even high normal, yet they may actually be exhibiting symptoms of low hormone status or vice versa for that matter. This, you know, and I will admit this doesn't happen quite as much with estradiol or estrogen. It happens more with testosterone, but it's still there, there still is an element of that with estradiol as well. Now, sex hormone binding globulin is a far less expensive test than free estradiol and could give you an indirect window into your free hormone status. And since we know sex hormone binding globulin is one of the proteins that bind sex hormones, rendering them inactive, you know, knowing your sex hormone binding globulin status, that is a mouthful, sex hormone binding globulin, um, say that 10 times fast, you know, knowing that could then give you some valuable and really less expensive insights. Although ideally, you'd want to really have both bound and free hormones if money weren't a factor. And I will say the caveat to that is sex hormone binding globulin binds a disproportionately less amount of estrogen than testosterone. So even if sex hormone binding globulin is on the higher side, you'll know that testosterone is being bound up significantly, but estrogen to a far lesser degree than testosterone and its metabolite DHT. Okay, now there's also saliva and urine testing of estrogen. Now, 
I have to be honest, I am not a huge fan of saliva hormone testing in general. I've just seen firsthand some pretty egregious inaccuracy that over time, they've just put a bad taste in my mouth, I'll be honest. Now, putting aside my own personal bias though, the vast majority of the medical literature on sex hormones have been done via blood testing anyway, right? They're considerably more validated, more reliable, and they're used consistently in research, right? The other downside to saliva is that you're only getting the unbound hormones, which, like I said before, is, is valuable. Like, it definitely has value for sure, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. Okay, let's go over some of the upsides, right? Some of the upsides to saliva testing is the ability to take the test at home. And when you're needing to do, say, multiple tests a day, like for cortisol testing or throughout the month, such as in the case of ov ovulatory testing, uh, saliva is far more practical. And, you know, I, I, I fully acknowledge that. Like, there's no question that saliva testing is superior to blood in that particular context. But to me, since urine testing provides those same conveniences, but also provide the insight of measuring the hormone breakdown products known as metabolites as well, it just seems like a no-brainer to go with urine over saliva. You know, I am, I, I, you know, I'll fully say I am open to being introduced to a saliva test that may be accurate and affordable that perhaps I'm not aware of. But at the moment, I just don't see the value when there are other options with more validity, reliability, as well as providing an overall greater value. So while I am partial to blood testing, I do think urine is great too. The fact is there is no way to measure hormone breakdown in blood which makes sense in circulating hormones by definition are not broken down. They ultimately become broken down and eventually you end up peeing and pooping them out, right? This is why urine testing is great for knowing what happens to these hormones. And, you know, much like saliva, urine also is limited to free hormones, but measuring blood levels of hormones concurrently is a simple workaround for that one shortcoming to urine testing. Okay, now let's say, for example, your total estrogen levels are relatively high and higher than is deemed ideal for optimal or functional or whatever, you know, whatever term you deem to be good, quote unquote good. Uh, one obvious way to determine if it's an estrogen clearance issue is to first evaluate the total estrogen levels and compare them to the level of estrogen breakdown, right? These are known as estrogen metabolites, right? Metabolites, just in, in a general sense, mean the breakdown of, of something, in this particular case, hormones. Now, there are many estrogen metabolites, but the three main players for the purpose of this particular topic are called the 2-hydroxyestrone, the 4-hydroxyestrone, and 16-hydroxyestrone. So the question is, how would one test for these estrogen metabolites, right? So as I mentioned before, the best and really the only way to test for hormone breakdown is to measure it in urine. So if you see a disproportionately high amount of total estrogen relative to the estrogen metabolites, this would be a clue that you may not be appropriately breaking down estrogen as needed, and thus you might find levels building up over time. You know, this is, it's, you know, it's, it, I wouldn't say it's a hard and fast rule, but it's a logical guideline for sure. So 
I keep mentioning these estrogen metabolites, but really, why does it even matter what the levels of estrogen breakdown are in the body? Like, why is this even relevant? What value does knowing this even serve? So these metabolites are strongly implicated in estrogen-driven cancers for starters. So you have the 2-hydroxy estrogen, which is the most benign and least harmful of the three metabolites I'll be discussing. So you really want a considerably disproportionately high level of the 2-hydroxy estrone than the 4, as well as the 16. Now, the 16-hydroxy estrone is not all bad, right? There is a bit of a duality there, right? You don't want high levels, as the 16-hydroxy estrone has been shown, to stimulate cellular proliferation and thus can lead to the growth of tumor cells, but some, right, some is needed for things like bone health and the lack thereof has been shown to contribute to osteoporosis as well as osteopenia. But ultimately, since it can serve to make things grow like cancer cells, you don't really want too much of it around, right? Just enough to serve its basic functions and that's it. Now, the 4-hydroxyestrone is the one you want as close to zero as possible, right? This is the one that can lead to DNA damage as it's potentially carcinogenic. Now, knowing not only the levels of all three of these metabolites, but also the ratios as well, can provide the necessary data to help guide you as to the proper steps that may need to be taken to get you on a path of addressing some lifestyle changes that could help to push the 2-hydroxy pathway and to hopefully help to suppress the, the more DNA-damaging 4-hydroxy pathway. So that about does it for today's episode on estrogen. Now, next week, I plan on taking a deeper dive into those three metabolites and get into the, the details of how the metabolites are made, what happens once they're formed, uh, why we may end up reabsorbing these hormones, and what, if any, is the process of getting rid of and or rendering the DNA-damaging metabolites harmless. So stay tuned for that. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of that episode. Now, if you like the content on today's episode, please leave a comment and leave a five-star review. It really helps out a lot. And most importantly, don't forget to subscribe. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, take care, everyone. This podcast for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties for guests' qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.